Section 36 The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Root. Rome Becomes a Monarchy. Part 3. These complicated disasters roused Antony from his lethargy. He sailed to Tyre, intending to take the field against the Parthians, but the season was too far advanced, and he therefore crossed the Aegean to Athens, where he found Fulvia and his brother, accompanied by Pollio, Plancus, and others, all discontented with Octavian's government. Octavian was absent in Gaul, and their representation of the state of Italy encouraged him to make another attempt. Late in the year 41, Antony formed a league with Sextus Pompeius, and while that chief blockaded Thurii and Consentia, Antony assailed Brandusium. Agrippa was preparing to meet this new combination, and a fresh civil war was imminent. But the soldiery was weary of war. Both armies compelled their leaders to make pacific overtures, and the new year was ushered in by a general peace, which was rendered easier by the death of Fulvia. Antony and Octavian renewed their professions of amity, and entered Rome together in joint ovation to celebrate the restoration of peace. They now made a third division of the provinces, by which Scodra, Scutari, in Illyricum was fixed as the boundary of the west and east. Lepidus was still left in possession of Africa. It was further agreed that Octavian was to drive Sextus Pompeius, lately the ally of Antony, out of Sicily while Antony renewed his pledges to recover the standards of Crassus from the Parthians. The new compact was sealed by the marriage of Antony with Octavia, his colleague's sister, a virtuous and beautiful lady, worthy of a better consort. These auspicious events were celebrated by the lofty verse of Virgil's fourth eclogue, Sextus Pompeius had reason to complain. By the peace of Brandusium he was abandoned by his late friend to Octavian. He was not a man to brook ungenerous treatment. Of late years his possession of Sicily had given him command of the Roman corn market. During the winter which followed, the peace of Brandusium, B.C. 40-39, to Sextus blockaded Italy so closely that Rome was threatened with a positive dearth. Riots arose, the triumvirs were pelted with stones in the forum, and they deemed it prudent to temporize by inviting Pompey to enter their league. He met them at Misenum, and the two chiefs went on board his ship to settle the terms of alliance. It is said 
that one of his chief officers, a Greek named Menas, or Menodorus, suggested to him the expediency of putting to sea with the great prize, and then making his own terms. Sextus rejected the advice with the characteristic words, You should have done it without asking me. It was agreed that Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica should be given up to his absolute rule, and that Achaia should be added to his portion, so that the Roman world was now partitioned among four, Octavian, Antony, Lepidus, and Sextus Pompeius. On their return, the triumvirs were received with vociferous applause. Before winter, Antony sailed for Athens in company with Octavia, who for the time seems to have banished Cleopatra from his thoughts. But he disgusted all true Romans by assuming the attributes of Grecian gods and indulging in Grecian orgies. He found the state of things in the East greatly changed since his departure. He had commissioned Publius Ventidius Bassus, an officer who had followed Fulvia from Italy, to hold the Parthians in check till his return. Ventidius was son of a Picenian nobleman of Asculum, who had been brought to Rome as a captive in the social war. In his youth he had been a contractor to supply mules for the use of the Roman commissariat. But in the civil wars which followed, men of military talent easily rose to command, and such was the lot of Ventidius. While Antony was absent in Italy, he drove Quintus Labenus into the defiles of Taurus, and here that adventurer was defeated and slain. The conqueror then marched rapidly into Syria, and forced Pacorus also to withdraw to the eastern bank of the Euphrates. In the following year, 38, he repelled a fresh invasion of the Parthians, and defeated them in three battles. In the last of these engagements, Pacorus himself was slain on the fifteenth anniversary of the death of Crassus. Antony found Ventidius laying siege to Samosata, and displaced him, only to abandon the siege and return to Athens. Ventidius repaired to Rome, where he was honored with a well-deserved triumph. He had left it as a mule-jobber. He returned with the laurel round his brows. He was the first and almost the last Roman general who could claim such a distinction for victory over the Parthians. The alliance with Sextus Pompeius was not intended to last, and it did not last. Antony refused to put him in possession of Achaia, and to avenge himself for this breach of faith, Pompeius again began to intercept the Italian corn fleets. Fresh discontent appeared at Rome, and Octavian equipped a second fleet to sail against the naval chief. But after two battles of doubtful result, the fleet was destroyed by a storm, and Sextus was again left in undisputed mastery of the sea. Octavian, however, was never daunted by reverses, and he gave his favorite Agrippa 
full powers to conduct the war against Pompeius. This able commander set about his work with that resolution that marked a man determined not to fail. As a harbor for his fleet, he executed a plan of the great Caesar, namely to make a good and secure harbor on the coast of Latium, which then as now offered no shelter to ships. For this purpose he cut a passage through the narrow necks of land which separated Lake Lucrinus from the sea, and Lake Avernus from Lake Lucrinus, and faced the outer barrier with stone. This was the famous Julian port. In the whole of the two years B.C. 38 and 37, Agrippa was occupied in this work, and in preparing a sufficient force of ships, every dockyard in Italy was called into requisition. A large body of slaves was set free that they might be trained to serve as rowers. On the 1st of July, B.C. 36, the fleet put to sea. Octavian himself, with one division, purposed to attack the northern coast of Sicily, while a second squadron was assembled at Tarentum for the purpose of assailing the eastern side. Lepidus, with a third fleet from Africa, was to assault Lilibaeum. But the winds were again adverse, and though Lepidus effected a landing on the southern coast, Octavian's two fleets were driven back to Italy with great damage. But the injured ships were refitted, and Agrippa was sent westward toward Panormus, while Octavian himself kept guard near Messana. Off Milet, a place famous for having witnessed the first naval victory of the Romans, Agrippa encountered the fleet of Sextus Pompeius. But Sextus, with the larger portion of his ships, gave Agrippa the slip, and sailing eastward fell suddenly upon Octavian's squadron off Toromenium. A desperate conflict followed, which ended in the complete triumph of Sextus, and Octavian escaped to Italy with a few ships only. But Agrippa was soon upon the traces of the enemy. On the 3rd of September, Sextus was obliged once more to accept battle near the Straits of Messana, and suffered an irretrievable defeat. His troops on land were attacked and dispersed by an army which had been landed on the eastern coast by the indefatigable Octavian, and Sextus sailed off to Lesbos, where he had found a refuge as a boy during the campaign of Pharsalia, to seek protection from the jealousy of Antony. Lepidus had assisted in the campaign, but after the departure of Sextus, he openly declared himself independent of his brother Triumvirs. Octavian, with prompt and prudent boldness, entered the camp of Lepidus in person with a few attendants. The soldiers deserted in crowds, and in a few hours Lepidus was fain to sue for pardon, where he had hoped to rule. He was treated with contemptuous indifference. Africa was taken from him, but he was allowed to live and die at Rome in quiet enjoyment of the chief pontificate. 
It was fortunate for Octavian that during this campaign Antony was on friendly terms with him. In B.C. 37, the ruler of the East again visited Italy, and a meeting between the two chiefs was arranged at Tarentum. The five years for which the triumphers were originally appointed were now fast expiring, and it was settled that their authority should be renewed by the subservient senate and people for a second period of the same duration. They parted good friends, and Octavian undertook his campaign against Sextus Pompeius without fear from Antony. This was proved by the fate of the fugitive. From Lesbos Sextus passed over to Asia, where he was taken prisoner by Antony's lieutenants and put to death. Hitherto Octavia had retained her influence over Antony, but presently, after his last interview with her brother, the fickle triumvir abruptly quitted a wife who was too good for him, and returned to the fascinating presence of the Egyptian queen, whom he had not seen for three years. From this time forth he made no attempt to break the silken chain of her enchantments. During the next summer, indeed, he attempted a new Parthian campaign but his advance was made with reckless indifference to the safety of his troops. Provisions failed, disease broke out, and after great suffering he was forced to seek safety by a precipitate retreat into the Armenian mountains. In the next year he contented himself with a campaign in Armenia to punish the king of that country for alleged treachery in the last campaign. The king fell into his hands, and with this trophy Antony returned to Alexandria, where the Romans were disgusted to see the streets of a Greco-Egyptian town honored by a mimicry of a Roman triumph. For the next three years he surrendered himself absolutely to the will of the enchantress, to this period belong those tales of luxurious indulgence which are known to every reader. The brave soldier, who, in the perils of war, could shake off all luxurious habits and could rival the commonest man in the cheerfulness with which he underwent every hardship, was seen no more. He sunk into an indolent voluptuary, pleased by childish amusements. At one time he would lounge in a boat at a fishing party, and laugh when he drew up pieces of salt fish, which, by the queen's order, had been attached to his hook by divers. At another time she wagered that she would consume ten million sesterces at one meal, and won her wager by dissolving in vinegar a pearl of unknown value. While Cleopatra bore the character of the goddess Isis, her lover appeared as Osiris. Her head was placed conjointly with his own on the coins which he issued as a Roman magistrate. He disposed of the kingdoms and principalities of the East by his sole word. By his influence, Herod, son of Antipater, the Idumean minister of Hyrcanus, the late sovereign of Judea, was made king to the exclusion of the rightful heir. Polemo, 
his own son by cleopatra was invested with the sceptre of armenia encouraged by the absolute submission of her lover cleopatra fixed her eye upon the capital and dreamed of winning by means of antony that imperial crown which she had vainly sought from caesar while antony was engaged in voluptuous dalliance octavian was resolutely pursuing the work of consolidating his power in the west his patience his industry his attention to business his affability were winning golden opinions and rapidly obliterating all memory of the bloody work by which he had risen to power he had won little glory in war but so long as the corn fleets arrived daily from sicily and africa the populace cared little whether the victory had been won by octavian or by his generals in agrippa he possessed a consummate captain in Mecenas, a wise and temperate minister it is much to his credit that he never showed any jealousy of the men to whom he owed so much he flattered the people with the hope that he would when antony had fulfilled his mission of recovering the standards of crassus engage him to join in putting an end to their sovereign power and restoring constitutional liberty in point of fidelity to his marriage vows octavian was little better than antony he renounced his marriage with claudia the daughter of fulvia when her mother attempted to raise italy against him he divorced scribonia when it no longer suited him to court the favor of her kinsmen to replace this second wife he forcibly took away livia from her husband tiberius claudius nero though she was at that time pregnant of her second son but in this and other less pardonable immoralities there was nothing to shock the feelings of romans but octavian never suffered pleasure to divert him from business if he could not be a successful general he resolved at least to show that he could be a hardy soldier while antony in his egyptian palace was neglecting the parthian war his rival led his legions in more than one dangerous campaign against the barbarous dalmatians and pannonians who had been for some time infesting the province of illyricum in the year b c thirty three he announced that the limits of the empire had been extended northward to the banks of the save octavian now began to feel that any appearance of friendship with antony was a source of weakness rather than of strength at rome misunderstandings had already broken out antony complained that octavian had given him no share in the provinces rested from sextus pompeius and lepidus octavian retorted by accusing his colleague of appropriating egypt and armenia and of increasing cleopatra's power at the expense of the roman empire popular indignation rose to its height when plancus and tydeus who had been admitted to antony's confidence passed over to octavian and disclosed the contents of their master's will 
in that document antony ordered that his body should be buried at alexandria in the mausoleum of cleopatra men began to fancy that cleopatra had already planted her throne upon the capital these suspicions were sedulously encouraged by octavian before the close of b c thirty two octavian by the authority of the senate declared war nominally against cleopatra antony roused from his sleep by reports from rome passed over to athens issuing orders everywhere to levy men and collect ships for the impending struggle at athens he received news of the declaration of war and replied by divorcing octavia his fleet was ordered to assemble at corcyra and his legions in the early spring prepared to pour into epirus he established his headquarters at patrae on the corinthian gulf but antony though his fleet was superior to that of octavian allowed agrippa to sweep the ionian sea and to take possession of methone in messenia as a station for a flying squadron to intercept antony's communications with the east nay even to occupy corcyra which had been destined for his own place of rendezvous antony's fleet now anchored in the waters of the ambracian gulf while his legions encamped on a spot of land which forms the northern horn of that spacious inlet but the place chosen for the camp was unhealthy and in the heats of early summer his army suffered greatly from disease agrippa lay close at hand watching his opportunity in the course of the spring octavian joined him in person early in the season antony had repaired from petre to his army so as to be ready either to cross over into italy or to meet the enemy if they attempted to land in epirus at first he showed something of his old military spirit and the soldiers who always loved his military frankness warmed into enthusiasm but his chief officers won by octavian or disgusted by the influence of cleopatra deserted him in such numbers that he knew not whom to trust and gave up all thoughts of maintaining the contest with energy urged by cleopatra he resolved to carry off his fleet and abandon the army all preparations were made in secret and the great fleet put to sea on the twenty eighth of august for the four following days there was a strong gale from the south neither could antony escape nor could octavian put to sea against him from corcyra on the second of september however the wind fell and octavian's light vessels by using their oars easily came up with the unwieldy galleys of the eastern fleet a battle was now inevitable antony's ships were like impregnable fortresses to the assault of the slight vessels of octavian and though they lay nearly motionless in the calm sea little impression was made upon them but about noon a breeze sprung up from the west and cleopatra followed by sixty egyptian ships made sail in a southerly direction 
Antony immediately sprang from his ship of war into a light galley and followed. Deserted by their commander, the captains of Antony's ships continued to resist desperately, nor was it till the greater part of them were set on fire that the contest was decided. Before evening closed, the whole fleet was destroyed. Most of the men and all the treasure on board perished. A few days after, when the shameful flight of Antony was made known to his army, all his legions went over to the conqueror. It was not for eleven months after the Battle of Actium that Octavian entered the open gates of Alexandria. He had been employed in the interval in founding the city of Nicopolis to celebrate his victory on the northern horn of the Ambracian Gulf, in rewarding his soldiers and settling the affairs of the provinces of the east. In the winter he returned to Italy, and it was midsummer, B.C. 30, before he arrived in Egypt. When Antony and Cleopatra arrived off Alexandria, they put a bold face upon the matter. Some time passed before the real state of the case was known, but it soon became plain that Egypt was at the mercy of the conqueror. The queen formed all kinds of wild designs. One was to transport the ships that she had saved across the Isthmus of Suez and seek refuge in some distant land where the name of Rome was yet unknown. Some ships were actually drawn across, but they were destroyed by the Arabs, and the plan was abandoned. She now flattered herself that her powers of fascination, proved so potent over Caesar and Antony, might subdue Octavian. Secret messages passed between the conqueror and the queen. Nor were Octavian's answers such as to banish hope. Antony, full of repentance and despair, shut himself up in Pharos, and there remained in gloomy isolation. In July, B.C. 30, Octavian appeared before Pelusium. The place was surrendered without a blow. Yet, at the approach of the conqueror, Antony put himself at the head of a division of cavalry and gained some advantage. But on his return to Alexandria, he found that Cleopatra had given up all her ships, and no more opposition was offered. On the 1st of August, Sextilis, as it was then called, Octavian entered the open gates of Alexandria. Both Antony and Cleopatra sought to win him. Antony's messengers the conqueror refused to see, but he still used fair words to Cleopatra. The queen had shut herself up in a sort of mausoleum built to receive her body after death, which was not approachable by any door, and it was given out that she was really dead. All the tenderness of old times revived in Antony's heart. He stabbed himself, and in a dying state ordered himself to be laid by the side of Cleopatra. The queen, touched by pity, ordered her expiring lover to be drawn up by cords into her retreat and bathed his temple with her tears. After he had breathed his last, she consented to see Octavian, 
her penetration soon told her that she had nothing to hope from him she saw that his fair words were only intended to prevent her from desperate acts and reserve her for the degradation of his triumph this impression was confirmed when all instruments by which death could be inflicted were found to have been removed from her apartments but she was not to be so baffled she pretended all submission but when the ministers of octavian came to carry her away they found her lying dead upon her couch attended by her faithful waiting women eras and charmian the manner of her death was never ascertained popular belief ascribed it to the bite of an asp which had been conveyed to her in a basket of fruit thus died antony and cleopatra antony was by nature a genial open-hearted roman a good soldier quick resolute and vigorous but reckless and self-indulgent devoid alike of prudence and of principle the corruptions of the age the seductions of power and the evil influence of cleopatra paralyzed a nature capable of better things we know him chiefly through the exaggerated assaults of cicero in his philippic and the narratives of writers devoted to octavian but after all deductions for partial representation enough remains to show that antony had all the faults of caesar with little of his redeeming greatness cleopatra was an extraordinary person at her death she was but thirty-eight years of age her power rested not so much on actual beauty as on her fascinating manners and her extreme readiness of wit in her follies there was a certain magnificence which excites even a dull imagination we may estimate the real power of her mental qualities by observing the impression her character made upon the roman poets of the time no meditated praises could have borne such testimony to her greatness as the lofty strain in which horace celebrates her fall and congratulates the roman world on its escape from the ruin which she was threatening to the capital octavian dated the years of his imperial monarchy from the day of the battle of actium but it was not till two years after the summer of b c twenty nine that he established himself in rome as ruler of the roman world then he celebrated three magnificent triumphs after the example of his uncle the great dictator for his victories in dalmatia at actium and in egypt at the same time the temple of janus was closed notwithstanding that border wars still continued in gaul and spain for the first time since the year b c two thirty five all men drew breath more freely and all except the soldiery looked forward to a time of tranquillity liberty and independence were forgotten words after the terrible disorders of the last century the general cry was for quiet at any price octavian was a person admirably fitted to fulfil these aspirations his uncle julius was too fond of active exertion to play such a part well 
Octavian never shone in war, while his vigilant and patient mind was well fitted for the discharge of business. He avoided shocking popular feeling by assuming any title savoring of royalty, but he enjoyed by universal consent an authority more than regal. End of section 36